Hello, friends, and welcome to the Nugget Climbing Podcast, a podcast where I interview world-class climbers and expert coaches and try to learn as much as I can from them, try to extract as many nuggets as I can that we can all apply to our own climbing and our lives. My guest today is Jesse Gruber. Jesse's 27 years old. He grew up in New Jersey. He's a mechanical engineer and is working at the Harvard Biodesign Lab, working on soft robotics. We talked about that. And he will be representing the United States at the Paris Olympics. Very excited for this guy. It was very fun to talk to him. Jesse is a lead climbing specialist. And of course, the format for the Paris Olympics is a combined format. And to give you guys a sense of how impressive this guy has been in the last year, going back to 2022, he got last place in his first ever World Cup bouldering competition. And less than two years later, he won the combined format at the Pan American Games and secured his ticket to Paris to compete at the Olympics. So I was very excited to talk to him. I was very curious to hear how he turned around his bouldering in particular. And yeah, he had a lot of great insights to share about many different topics. I especially liked his concept of optimistic training. We talked about that quite a lot, and it was something I could definitely relate to. Lots of good stuff in this episode. Please enjoy Jesse Gruber. Steven. There we go. Sorry for the delay. I uh, just had my infusion yesterday and I had like all these boxes and random uh, pieces of medical equipment lying around. So I was trying to find a spot. So sorry for the awkward angle, but hopefully this works. Yeah, this works. No worries at all. (laughs) Let's try changing your microphone over again. Did we do that last time? Uh, I'm not sure if we did. Okay. It sounds like you're, uh, it sounds like you have a mic on your headphones that's picking up your audio. I wonder if we can you, you can keep your headphones on, but just change your microphone over to uh, MacBook or internal. Okay. See if you can do that. Does that sound a little better? There we go. Nice. Sweet. Okay, cool. You're a tech guy. Some people some people take 10 minutes to figure that out. I've definitely been through the ringer before. <laughs> <laughs> Are you in Waco right now? I am. Yeah, it's very hot. It is, I think, high of 78 degrees today. So, oh, wow. Yeah. Definitely different than what I imagined yeah. like, being in February. It's been really nice, but yeah, we're, we have kind of a hot streak right now. So I'm laying low today, just getting some work done, talking to you. Nice. Yeah. Nice. I'm glad I could be, I don't know, hopefully fun work for you. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I'm, I'm stoked. <laughs> I'm stoked to be here with you. Yeah. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing well. Um, yeah, as I said, I'm, uh, you know, kind of living the nomadic lifestyle right now. So I'm in Boston right now for my infusion, uh, and also seeing my partner, uh, who is based here. So yeah, it's nice to be with her for the week and, uh, also get some meds in me. <laughs> okay. Is this for, is this for, uh, ulcerative colitis? It is. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, insurance challenges for getting the medicine are a little bit up there when, especially when I'm like traveling. So it's kind of nice to just have like one base spot where I could like get the medicine kind of consistently and, uh, Boston has been that place so far. Um, I've also gotten in Utah, but just like doing the transfer, it takes like a lot of weeks and sometimes it doesn't work out. So I just like being on top of it, especially 
as like the competition season is starting up. Totally. Yeah, that makes sense. Are you ready to just dive in, by the way? I'm already recording. Yeah, so we let, can just, let's do it. Let's go for it. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, I didn't mean to start. I didn't plan to start with this, but I'm, I'm interested. What does that look like for you? Like how often do you have to go get an infusion? How long does it take? How do you feel afterwards? I mean, it sounds like you just did it this morning and I'm already talking to you, so you, you seem fine. But um, but yeah, what does that process look like and how often do you have to do it? Yeah, so uh, I guess I was to, I don't know, kind of get the whole story. I was hospitalized for the condition about uh, three years ago, two years ago, probably like three years ago now, actually. Uh, and since then, I've been receiving routine infusions every other month. So every eight weeks, I get an infusion for them. It's kind of funny. It's like uh, also used to treat like arthritis and some other uh, autoimmune conditions. Um, but basically, it really can like, yeah, knock the immune system down a little bit. So especially when I'm traveling, I have to be like a little bit more careful just with like sickness and stuff. I, I had uh, in the 2022 season, like three times after getting my infusion, I like immediately got sick with mm. like COVID strep and potentially like dengue fever. <laughs> Uh, Indonesia. Wow. Um, so yeah, it's like, it, it definitely can uh, take a toll like on the immune system, but I don't know. I, I think that uh, it's a little bit more rare for it to consistently like get you sick afterwards. But the goal is kind of to have like one spot where I'll consistently get it. But I think when I'm like traveling to Europe for comps or, you know, based in Salt Lake for a period and then kind of having like this nomadic lifestyle, it definitely can be challenging to figure out the insurance side of things of where to get the medicine mm-hmm. taken care of. Uh, I've actually like in the past come back from Europe just to kind of get the infusion and then go back on the competition circuit. So it, it can be a pain, but honestly, like if I was like in one spot, it probably wouldn't be too bad. Mm-hmm. Did you grow up in Boston? Uh, I grew up in Jersey um, and then I went to school here uh, and then worked for like two and a half years or, or three right after. So okay. uh, I kind of feel like a Bostonite <laughs> in some ways, like probably been here for like seven or eight years and uh, it always feels like home with like so many friends and and some family around. Okay. Do you still have family back in Jersey or have you kind of cut ties with Jersey at this point? Yeah, I do. I guess I'm also a Jersey boy for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, spent uh, yeah most of my childhood there and uh, until I was 18, I guess. So still also have a decent amount of friends there. And most of my uh, immediate and extended family are all based in like the tri-state area. Okay. Yeah, that's cool. I'm curious about your nomadic lifestyle. I want to dig into that because, uh, you know, we, we talked a week ago and that kind of piqued my interest. I'm living in a van, as you can see, and I'm here in Waco. And so my nomadic lifestyle is very much centered around chasing rock climbing weather. Um, but you're a freaking Olympian and you're training in the gym all the time for Paris. What does that look like for you to have a nomadic lifestyle? And it sounds like you really enjoy it. What is it about it that you enjoy so much? There are definitely perks to it. I don't have to pay rent like every month. Uh, I I guess I I do pay rent, of course, in uh, some parts of the year. But overall, that's definitely a, a good a good spot for it. I think that I enjoy consistent training, but I also find that if I'm in one spot for too long. I kind of get in this routine where the excitement to like step into the gym or like step into a new area that you might get, like when you're going to an outdoor climbing spot that you haven't been before kind of like dies down a little bit. So I find like getting to leave a consistent spot and building up a base and then like getting to in the same way that someone living in a van and going to 
you know, different climbing spots throughout the country might get some excitement, like going to new spots, like going to Colorado or San Diego or Boston and getting to experience like new styles, new setting really enables me to, you know, continue to have that excitement towards like competition. And, uh, it is kind of like, uh, I feel like a gym rat saying that, but, uh, it's just the way it is right now. And, um, obviously I'm focused on the Olympics, like in August and trying to be my best self for that. And I find that keeping that excitement and engagement alive is really key to it. I I find that fascinating, man. I love it. I, um, I think I told you last week, but I was in Rocklands this summer and I did an interview with my friend Jen DeBellis and she kind of was the first person to suggest this idea of a training trip to me. I'd never thought about it before, but like, oh, you can actually go on a trip for training. Just go check out a new city just to see what the city's like and check out a new gym and yeah, new setting like you're saying. Um, it's a really fun idea. I'm curious though, like you must have... I'm imagining like a, a very regimented um, training program. Like you're, you know, you're leading up to the Olympics. We've got still a lot of time, but I imagine if you're changing your location and your facilities all the time, it'd be really hard to stay in a nice rhythm with your training. How do you do that? Like, are there staple things that you look for in a gym before you commit to a new spot? And when you go in a gym for the first time, like what? Are there like routines or like what, what are the things that you do to kind of make sure that you're staying in your rhythm with your training? Because I know for myself, I go to a new gym and I'm like a kid in a candy store. I'm overwhelmed by the number of new fun things. And I just like, it's not quality training. I just get totally derailed and, and have to kind of like scratch that itch before I can focus in. I, I actually find it really hard to, um, to kind of do my routine in a new setting all the time. I, I kind of am a creature of habit. But yeah, are there things that you do to kind of create a rhythm despite being in new places? Yeah. I, I mean, I think that uh, it's kind of similar to a grocery store in some ways where like you walk in and you first find like, I, I have like one aisle that I always like to go to, which would be like the produce aisle. And then, uh, you know, you kind of know what you want to like hit along the way. Uh, so in the same way, like I think many American gyms kind of have their staples, like commercial sets, board climbing has become kind of like a staple here. Uh, as well as like lifting and uh, kind of workout area. So I think that I kind of just go through that same routine and it just might be a little bit different finding those spots. But I always kind of know, at least in the gyms that I like would frequent, they would sort of have like those key like aisles or staples um, within them. Uh, I also think that it's been really fun to get to work with a wide range of coaches. Um, so uh, in those, you know, sort of four cities like Colorado, Salt Lake City, Boston and San Diego, they're, they all have uh, coaches that I really admire and respect and uh, think that uh, it's really fun to like get to work with them along with other friends who like maybe will rejuvenate me in different ways uh, with their training or with just like their talent in general. I think that also adds like a degree of fun and like a twist to the training. So uh, I think that uh, having those staples alongside like that little twist really makes it so that my training regimen like stays, but also that excitement is able to continue and uh, really grow on that nomadic lifestyle. That makes sense. So you're kind of, you have your, you have your staples, you have kind of a circuit. You're not just popping into random gyms around the country and trying to figure out your training. Yeah, it does make it a little bit more challenging, I would say, like going to Europe, but, uh, or like other countries in general. But I think that the benefit of going to those other countries is that the style is even more different or they have other tools or, um, you know, coaches that have other perspectives than maybe America uh, would 
at this current moment. Um, I've always like kind of admired that like difference in philosophy, I would say, between like Europe, Asia, America, and kind of how we uh, all sort of got to where we are. I think like just to touch on it, I think that America being so spread out you know, we don't really have that like core team dynamic in the same way that other countries might. Mm. And I think that getting to do kind of like this hopping allows me to sort of feel like that camaraderie, um, getting to see like other people on the team and also just like friends involved in the circuit is like the best feeling that I would get. And most similar to like spray wall gym, uh, which is actually, uh, probably one of the best gyms in the world. Say that again, which, which spray wall gym? Sorry, like uh, the Slovenian or like Roman's gym, for instance. Um, yeah, just like a smaller gym relative to like U.S. standards, but probably one of the best gyms like in the world just because of the atmosphere that it sort of brings and uh, how it really can like bring uh, a full team sort of together. Mm. <laughs> how does this uh, how does this work out logistically? You said that one of the perks is not paying rent. Are you staying on friends' couches? I mean, you're a freaking Olympian. Like, how are you making sure that you have you know, the comforts that you need to recover well with all the training that you're doing when you're jumping into a new city? I didn't hear the first part of that question. I think the, the Wi-Fi might have uh, cut out for a second, but uh, I think I heard the second. So just tell me if I didn't fully answer it. I think uh, right now I do have like spots, like for instance, like um, when I'm in Boston, like I uh, stay with my girlfriend. When I'm in Salt Lake City, I'll stay with Kara Condi, actually, who's an Olympian as well. Um, and yeah, kind of, have uh friends and uh people who are I, I feel very fortunate who like let me into their their homes sometimes it is uh on a comfortable couch i'll say uh sometimes i'll just you know do the airbnb lifestyle or yeah kind of just find a temporary place for uh, a shorter amount of time for instance when i'm like going to europe that would sort of be what it would look like more so so it is it is like i i kind of planned it out for sure uh, but i think i'm very fortunate to have friends who like are looking out for me that's very cool. <laughs> and is this like, do you rotate through these places in a seasonal way? Like, do you go to San Diego in the spring and then, I don't know, Colorado, the front range in the summer? Like, do you, does it work like that? Or do you just wait until you feel like things are stagnating a little bit? You need a, you need something fresh and then you just, you know, go with the flow and, and go wherever you feel uh, called to next. How, how do you, how do you decide where to go next and when you're in each spot? Yeah, this, this is like my second year doing it. So if people, if people have uh, tips or tricks to <laughs> how to best live a nomadic lifestyle, I'm definitely uh, here for it in the comments. But, um, I think for me, like it is uh, a little bit about like following opportunities. So, you know, getting to go to Colorado in the summer and, uh, getting to go to the park and like climb outside for, you know, one day a week or a couple of days a week, uh, would be pretty sweet. Um, going to San Diego, especially in the winter is like quite nice just because it's like, okay, it's, you know, very cold everywhere else. And here I get to go to sit on a beach and, you know, lap in some sun. So I think that that definitely has like a little bit of uh, play to it. Um, you know, when I need to receive my infusion, going to Boston or, you know, just wanting to have some more moral support from my partner, you know, that, that is definitely like plays into it. So I think I haven't really figured out like a routine I'll say, but I do think that just the various factors that make one happy is uh, important when it comes to making the decision of like where to put home base for a bit of time. Are other people doing this? Like I've never heard another <laughs> high level competitor talk about this kind of lifestyle. I mean, aside from, you know, all the competitors are doing so much traveling for the World Cup circuit, 
during competition season, that's just kind of baked in. But, um, but yeah, is anyone else doing this kind of seasonal training trip thing? I definitely have friends who are psyched to come with me, you know, on individual like week trips or, uh, or maybe even longer. I don't know as many people who don't have a home base who aren't just like climbing outside. Um, so I guess I'm an oddball when it comes to that. Uh, but I feel, I feel like I have decent reasons for doing that. I feel like Salt Lake is a great spot for me to be based for uh, a decent amount of time. But I also find that I end up like missing sort of, uh, some things when it comes to certain friends or kind of just having my own sort of like routine when it comes to like gyms. And I think it is kind of hard for me to kind of like have that balance. And I feel like I'm often drawn to like being in the training center and like climbing with other people for like kind of consistently. So I kind of feel like I fall into this performance mindset when I'm in Salt Lake City for too long, uh, mm. which, you know, isn't anyone's fault. It's not like the facility's fault or like, um, you know, I, I think that like I have tremendous respect for, you know, the whole organization. And uh, I have a, obviously a lot of friends living in Salt Lake and uh, I think it is like a great home for me. Yeah, I just like switching it up. And I think it's like nice to find places where I can both climb with friends and get to do that whole routine while also getting to, you know, plug in uh, to my own routine and um, not thinking about performance at all and just focusing on training. Um, I think that's really key to any competitive or climber in general, having like performance days and training days. Um, And when they start like blurring together, it can be really challenging to maintain your best self. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. I can imagine, you know, especially when you're around the athletes that you're going to be competing against in World Cups or at the Olympics. Um, yeah, it's it's just a different energy. Like you feel like you have to match where they're at, even if that's not the best thing for you to focus on on that given day. Yeah, I can I can kind of see how that would get blurry. Whatever you're doing, yeah, but I think go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I like I think it's like a. I don't know. I really appreciate like the opportunity to have that. And I know how, like how much of a privilege that is to get to be surrounded by people who are better than you in some ways or another. So I really like enjoy getting to take advantage of that. Just as you said, like, I think it's just every day. It can't necessarily be like that. Well, yeah, I think it's true for everyone actually in the training center and, uh, and beyond. Mm. Yeah, we should, uh, we should circle back to that. I definitely want to dig into, uh, more of your training and how you're approaching the Olympics um, later on. But for now, I, I started to say this, man, whatever you're doing is working. You qualified for the frickin' Olympics and you're going to compete in Paris in August. Congratulations. I'm, <laughs> I'm so stoked to dig into uh, a bunch of different aspects of that. But I wanted to ask you, are you surprised to be where you are now? And to kind of set this up, I read an article Um, I think it was an interview that you did in Climbing Magazine, Climbing Online, and you were talking about how you you feel very accomplished in your climbing. You started climbing at age six. You've been climbing, you know, like after 14 years of climbing, you felt like, wow, I've I've really done a lot of cool stuff. And it sounds like you had basically decided to give up on World Cups and to step away from high-level competition. And then that 15th year changed everything. So I'm fascinated by this. Tell me, how were you feeling about your climbing and competing a year ago? Yeah, when you say it like that, I feel like a a gambler (laughs) in a lot of ways. It's like I keep like hitting the slots and uh, for 14 years, I'm like losing in some way. And then 
you know, the 15th is suddenly like uh, bells and whistles are going off. But no, I, I think that it was just like a really, uh, I always had a relationship with climbing competitions that they were something beautiful, for, beautiful for me, something that I always like reveled in, like the fun and excitement. And I think I just got to a point where reality kind of like caught up with me where I was like, okay, like I'm not making money doing this. I'm not able to really do this professionally and I enjoy the heck out of it. And I think it's like one of the most fun things and uh, one of the things that like makes me driven the most. But uh, I feel like I also want to experience this whole like engineering world that I maybe haven't gone to as, as much yet, which we can get into more like later on. So I did take a step back. I just wanted to see what other parts of life were out there. And after sort of doing that for two and a half years, I was like, well, I still kind of miss climbing and I miss comp- competing. So uh, can I, you know, pick that back up? And, you know, I, I don't expect to like go too far with it, but I want to give it my all and make sure that I like go out of climbing competitions, being happy with where I end up and uh, not feeling like I had any regrets by the end of that career. So as you uh, alluded to in 2022, uh, I did like the World Cup season again, was able to kind of be on the podium four times. And uh, I think that, you know, the previous year, um, working full time in like an engineering lab and uh, doing all of my training, like right after that, being like a little tired a lot of the time, but, um, you know, trying to do everything I could to be in the best shape possible when I walked onto that stage. It was really an incredible feeling to, you know, be able to see that hard work and persistence to the game kind of uh, pay off in, in the long run. And obviously, uh, I don't have regrets <laughs> towards towards that part. Um, and I'm really glad that I like kind of followed that like little Jesse uh, question in inside my heart, I would say, hmm. um, to keep pushing it. Um, and even after the 2022 season, I was like, okay, like now I'm starting to like make a little bit of money like doing this, but also enable to support myself a little bit. But I, I really enjoy engineering. So like, do I keep doing this? Do I follow that dream and goal of like going to the Olympics? And I think I thought that I would also have like regrets and uh, I, I didn't want to say no to the opportunity just because I thought I would fail. And once again, <laughs> very, very happy that I like uh, sought out to fruition. And I, I think that would be true even if I wasn't going to the Olympics this time. Like, I think it was just like such an amazing opportunity to continue to train, push myself and kind of really try to understand like what my maximum potential was. And I think the Olympics is just sort of that like cherry on top where, well, it's a little bit bigger than a cherry, but like, I think it's, <laughs> it's definitely like, uh, uh it, it's definitely like feels like that, you know, it's like one day of competing, but I think like all of that hard work and like becoming the best climber that I sort of could become for that moment will continue to like stand out to me on uh, this like large journey to get there. Mm. I love that. Uh, I love that little line that you threw in there. The little Jesse question in your heart. W- what was that question? Was it <laughs> what am I capable of? Something similar to that? What was that question? Yeah, I mean, not to get into it too much, but I definitely think like as a kid, like climbing was my thing. But I, I kind of had like the whole like Miley Cyrus persona where <laughs> I, I like I was a climber, and then I was like a school kid, and I had my school kid friends, and I had my like climbing friends, and I felt like whenever I brought up climbing in the school friend uh, district, like I would feel like bullied or like sort of like put down or like made to feel ostracized from like that community. So I always felt like climbing was like both my thing and also like a weird thing that 
isn't really like recognized by like the broader world as something that is like a sport in college and like beyond. Like I think that definitely has like changed that perspective. And I think um, <laughs> people are less obnoxious about <laughs> uh, being mean towards those who are different in general. It feels like in this uh, modern day, but uh, yeah, I definitely felt like an oddball for pursuing this like sport that like no one else in my school really cared at all about. What were they doing? Just playing soccer, football, <laughs> yeah, baseball? Exactly. Basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. yeah, which I also tried and oh my God, I was so bad <laughs> at, at all of the above. Um, yeah, <laughs> maybe one day that'll be my other pastime. Um, but I guess I'm just saying that because I think that I just never felt uh, fully respected uh, by like the broader world when it came to climbing. Um, and I think that the Olympics was always something that personally like I respected, but I felt like the Olympics, including climbing, was finally sort of a recognition that like what I cared about was also something that the broader world cared about. Mm. And I think it was like this like really interesting shift where it's like I had this like question in my heart for like a long time where it's like climbing is a thing that I love, but the world doesn't really care about it. And I think having that recognition of like the broader world accepting climbing uh, suddenly like flipped the switch that it's like, okay, I get to like represent the thing that I've always cared about on this like world stage. And it's not, it doesn't include speed climbing, which no offense, like, of course, like speed climbing is a cool discipline, but I think that personally, like, that's not how I like to represent the sport um, and like show like sort of like my art form uh, on, on uh, through like competition. Um, so once that was sort of like removed and this like, Boulder and lead format kind of came out. It was like, this is like, yeah, what I want. This is what I'm excited to do. And um, the world is being accepting of it in a venue that I've always admired for like my whole life. So yeah, let's, let's do it. Mm. That's fascinating to think back on, man. I mean, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I did not climb as a kid, so I didn't experience that. But I, I mean, I remember how, <laughs> how just mean kids are, you know, probably including me, uh, when I was a little punk ass high school kid or junior high or whatever. And yeah, anything that's other or different, at least back then, like kids are so harsh. It's just crazy though. Cause like it's changed so drastically so quickly, like now climbing super cool. All the kids do it, want to do it. I think, I mean, I'm obviously immersed in this world, so that's, you know, what I see, but we're all um, biased. <laughs> yeah, I can't, I, but I can't imagine being bullied for being a really good climber as a kid now. Like, do you think that still happens? Seems like it has um, changed, I think, but... I think there probably is the equivalent, and maybe it isn't as much in climbing. Um, I think the nice thing is, like, I think a lot of kids who are pursuing climbing have other kids in their school who, like, also are climbing because it's, like, grown that, that large. Uh, and you were, like, the only one. I think one. they're definitely... Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that that was like kind of my perspective. It's like, I'm the only one doing this weird thing uh, on the side. Um, but I'm sure like, you know, whatever, maybe it's not climbing, but it's like some other sport. And of course, like those feelings and animosity towards other in uh, grade school, I guess, is definitely still prevalent. Um, so I think right. that uh, that's something that, you know, I'm mindful of and continue wanting to sort of like stand up against, I guess, because I think that it's really important for everyone, no matter, you know, where they come from or like what they're doing to be able to do it well and uh, not feel like they're not able to do it just because of the way that they like look or what they're, what activity they're doing. So, um, yeah, I think it's an important uh, conversation to be had. 
You still, you, you feel like climbing is an art form. I actually had that written down, uh, the art form of rock climbing. I remember you saying that and uh, that really stood out to me because you're an Olympian and you're training, you know, you're an athlete and you're training for uh, the highest level of competition. Tell me more about your your thoughts about climbing as an art form and what that means to you. Yeah, I think it definitely is. I think that every day that you go into a gym or climb outside, like I think that those creative questions that an artist might ask themselves of like what they're trying to do here, what they're trying to represent and what they're trying to show uh, are all like really prevalent in, you know, a high-end training program. But that doesn't even have to start with like someone who's like going to the Olympics. Like I think just like the question of like, how do I want to move my body on this like platform that I've been given starts like when you're climbing like B1, B2, like in a gym for the first time. Do you like use more like leg power? Do you use more arm power? How are you representing like the body that you're in to get you from like point A to point B? And I think that like dance, I'll call it, even though I'm not a very <laughs> proficient dancer, um, like that we we can do like across um, uh, across this wall, like uh, really is like representative of like more than just like our physical strength, but really like shows how much like our potential can be as like humans in general. And I guess maybe that's like a little bit uh, meta or like philosophical, but like, I think that I, I really do think about that sometimes. I have uh, an uncle who is an actor and like every time uh, and, and he's like on Broadway and like every time he sort of like goes out to perform, he always changes something slightly about like the way he will do that performance, even though he's saying the same lines and saying and doing the same things. Um, and I think that whether it's like circuits or doing a boulder or, you know, we're trying the same things and we're trying to like improve on that same concept, but being able to uh, approach it in a slightly different way, maybe with slightly different beta or just like a, a mental approach that um, you've shifted uh, from the start of your session to the end, I think is really beautiful about the sport and uh, is more than just I'm pulling hard on two crimps and, you know, trying to go as far as I can. So I think that that's like the human element that makes an art form and not just a sport. Do you ask yourself those sorts of questions at the start of a training session? And, and I'm curious if you do that, like if you're, let's say you're trying a circuit and you've done it before, are you doing what your uncle does in your own way? Like, are you tweaking parts of your technique or trying new things on the same circuit that you've climbed many times? What are some examples of that? What does that look like? That's that's so interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's something that I do try to consciously think about. I, I'm not going to lie and say that that happens every time. But, you know, for instance, like the one that just comes to mind is like Josh, like the U.S. coach and, um, and me were like working on like speed and direction, uh, which is like the idea that how fast you move to a hold and like what direction you like land on it uh, will like change how well you're able to like stick to that position. And it's physically like, I guess, for bouldering, but um, we have like mock rounds, like in the training center. So approaching like that round, like those were the two questions sort of on my mind um, throughout that round. And, you know, sometimes like those questions that you're asking yourself are going to lead to poor results. And sometimes they're going to be like a win. But I think unless you get to like change kind of like the canvas that you're drawing on or like how you're approaching that, uh, I think that uh, you won't know like what questions are beneficial for you or not. So I think, I think that has been like a learning experience for me as a whole. And also it's like recognizing that a question that you're asking yourself on day one 
might not work on day two or, you know, being able to quickly change the question, quickly uh, address like how you're going to represent yourself like on the wall, um, given how you're feeling or given the demands that like the uh, climber like presenting to you really uh, drastically changes like the approach that you'll have. So I think that's like the sort of like hidden Zen skill of like competition climbing that I think is not as um, appreciated maybe as it should be because I think it in, and I, I bring it up for competition climbing, but of course uh, for outdoor climbing for, you know, sending your gym prod or, uh, you know, whatever in between steps you might, might have there as well. I think it all is applicable. That's so interesting. That's such an interesting, uh, I don't know what to call it philosophy or um, kind of mental approach. To, to problem solving. I've, yeah, I, it's just really unique. I've never heard anyone talk about it quite this way. And um, I mean, you know, I, I see it play out in like experimenting with beta and beta can be, you know, not even using different holds, but like using them in a slightly different way or, you know, trying to load up the left foot more before a move rather than driving through both feet or what, you know, there's there are all these subtle things, but um, I, I don't know if I've ever heard anyone talk about looking at your own climbing and your performance through this lens of like, how do I want to present myself? How do I want to be, uh, how do I want to express myself on the wall? And, and how does that affect like what I'm bringing into this next attempt? It's, yeah, it's, it's really, it's really cool. Yeah. And I think that, uh, uh, while I brought up my uncle, like, I think my, my dad is also, uh, one of the people that I would definitely like thank for providing me like that sort of like insight throughout my life. Like he's, a storyteller he makes like documentaries and i uh have always appreciated him because like he always is like whenever i'm doing like a writing piece or trying to whether it be like for school or just like in general like maybe a creative piece it's always about what question or uh what story are you trying to represent through like this work and i think that for me like that question of like storytelling and um you know clearly stating like uh, or, or not clearly stating, but just like expressing the ideas of what you want someone to take away from what you're writing or what you're showing them uh, is important, I think. And uh, keep being mindful of that is uh, is is representative of both like who you are and uh, allowing you to kind of take control of the narrative. So um, I think that, yeah, it's a beautiful part of writing, of storytelling and uh, climbing. And we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Tindec. I've talked about this thing a lot on the show because I'm a huge fan. The Tindec Progressor might be the most useful training tool I own. I've had mine for a little over a year now. I use it at the gym. I use it in my van. I use it at the crag. I use this thing all the time and it's super duper handy. What is it? The Tindec Progressor is a digital force gauge that you can sync to your phone with Bluetooth to measure your finger strength. You can use it for all sorts of other exercises too. This thing looks like a little block with a couple holes in it. You can attach it to a tension block. All you need is some type of hangboard, a couple carabiners, a sling, and your Tindec, and you can do legit finger training anywhere. It pairs with your phone and gives you a live readout of how much load you're pulling with your fingers. So you can do max hangs or recruitment pulls or whatever you want to do literally anywhere. 
I flew my Tin Deck to Magicwood and Rocklands last summer. It's really small. It weighs almost nothing, so it was no big deal. And I did all of my training with a tension block, a sling, and my Tin Deck all summer, and I set an all-time finger strength PR a few months into the trip, just from doing a few hard pulls before I went climbing a couple days a week. I've talked about this thing a lot with Tyler Nelson. He's a huge fan of this thing. He's the one who introduced me to it. There's lots of ways you can use it. It's awesome. Go to tindeck.com to check out their products. I have the Progressor 300, but the 200 is more than enough capacity for finger training. And use code NUGGET to save $10 off anything in their shop. That's tindeck.com, T-I-N-D-E-Q.com. And use code NUGGET at checkout to save $10 off your order. Train your fingers anywhere with Tindeck. This episode is brought to you by Crimped. If you are psyched to level up your climbing in 2024, check out the Crimped app. This is the most useful app I've seen when it comes to self-coached training for rock climbing. Crimped has dozens of workouts that focus on all the different facets of climbing performance and training, strength, endurance, power, flexibility, you name it. You can find workouts for whatever you want to train, and they have been carefully crafted by world-class climbers and coaches. I did a really fun collaboration with Crimped last year, and one of their featured playlists is a selection of workouts that I made for those of you who prefer to train on real rock. Emil Abrahamson also has a playlist to help you guys address common skill and strength gaps on the journey from V0 to V15. And Ryan Devlin over at the Struggle Podcast, who's a friend of the show, has a playlist for pumpy overhanging sport climbing as he chases his first 513 at the Red River Gorge. So you can find all of that and a lot more in the app. It really is a treasure trove of training information and it will guide you every step of the way. So check out Crimped. You can learn more and download the app by going to crimped.com. That's C-R-I-M-P-D.com to get started and download the Crimped app for free. And now back to the show. Is there a question that you have been focused on lately in your own climbing? Do you get stuck mm -hmm. on a question for a while and focus on, you know, kind of, sit with one question for a period of time? So I think that in my, uh, I, I'm not going to break people down into two camps, but I do think that like the, uh, I'm, I'm saying this because I think I've been in both camps in, in life. Um, the one camp is kind of like falling on a climb and say, asking yourself like, why do I suck? Why can I not do this move? And the other side is like falling into I just fell and I'm curious about like why I fell and, you know, like, like approaching it with uh, kind of more like optimism of like, I just didn't do this move, but uh, you know, is there like, what is the reason behind that? That's like not self deprecating, but more self enabling. And I think that I guess recently, like being in one spot, maybe for too long, I feel like I, slowly fall into like this like self-deprecating camp where I stop um, asking those like positive questions of like how am I enabling myself to like do better next time and starting to fall into oh I can't do this move because I have this like limitation or uh, lack of an ability so I, I kind of like call the left method because I put it over here sorry if it's on the podcast I guess it's just method two 
um, as like optimistic training. And I think that that's uh, kind of the camp that I always try to push for. And it's always something that I'm interested in expressing and questioning myself on, uh, yeah, what like nudge do I need to be able to do this like slightly better in the future? How is me falling here still like beneficial to my climbing and kind of keeping, yeah, like an optimistic mindset towards my training. And I think that being able to apply that to competition even is like one step further. Um, I'm not perfect at this by any means, but I always think that like when I'm able to consistently keep that mindset, uh, I end up doing better in performance days when I'm able to like train with an optic optimistic mindset mm. uh, and in, in that in that headspace. Yeah, I love that. I had that written down too. I, I'm really, I was really excited to dig into optimistic training and your training philosophy. Um, and, and now here we are, we're, we're talking about it. And it's, it's interesting to hear you describe it that way. And I, I don't want to spend much time talking about myself because, you know, I'm sure that gets old. You know, I'm here for every single episode for people listening, but... Um, I enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. But no, I mean, just, I, I can just so relate to it. And it's fascinating to be having this conversation and have you describe it that way right now, because I I can see how I just crossed over in my own climbing here in Waco. And I can actually now see that that's very much a trend for me. Like you said, if you stay in the same training spot for too long, it's harder to stay optimistic and you kind of dip into that more pessimistic mindset. And um, I'm trying something different this season. I've talked about it a bit already on the show, but I'm, you know, rather than trying to send lots of stuff and check lots of boxes, I've just been like really all in on a handful of projects and like rotating between them. And it's been really satisfying to just make progress on all of them, even though I haven't sent anything. And about a week ago, something shifted and I started falling into like, damn, like, why haven't I, I thought I would have been able to do this by now. Or like, why haven't I gotten better enough in climbing in the last four years to do these sorts of things more quickly? Like I started falling into all those sorts of kind of woe is me or like what's wrong with me, pessimistic sort of, um, uh, mental tracks, those narratives. And it's been a lot harder to connect with like the joy that comes from seeing this little tiny bit of improvement. So it's fascinating. So what what do you do when you notice yourself, when you notice yourself start to dip into, I suck. Oh, I can't believe I fell off that move. Like what's wrong with me or whatever. What do you do? Is, is that when you change set and setting? And is it just a matter of kind of switching things up or do you have mental strategies for, switching back over into that more optimistic mindset. Yeah, I do think that like switching location has helped me. And I think that kind of goes back to the last conversation of like, why do I do that? And why do I have like this nomadic lifestyle? I think that uh, it just lets me, it's like an easy, hard reset. Like I'm in a new place, have a new perspective. Um, I would say like in the moment, I think that the biggest technique that I think has helped is just asking myself like what I've like learned on the climb. Uh, I think that as climbers, like we have this like natural tendency to say we either did it or we didn't. But I think like just building up uh, both on the approach side and then also like movement and skill side pieces that will allow you to better approach and achieve uh, whether it be a competition block or an outdoor climb in Waco. I think getting to truly like understand what is an improvement from like the first try that you gave to maybe the 30th or 50th try uh, is an important perspective to have because it'll allow you to do 
other movement in the future in climbing. And I think that there's no day that you have that you didn't send something that isn't beneficial in some way to your climbing as a whole and getting to continue to have that perspective of you're more than like this one day of climbing is I think essential to you being uh, your best self. Um, And I think uh, just to kind of like round out the conversation, I think when I like approach a training session specifically, I think there are sort of two objectives. First is like trying to send, maybe it be like uh, a competition climb that I haven't done before or maybe a circuit that I've been like working on for the past like three weeks. But the second is just like trying to uh, come in with like a workout in the case of like indoor climbing, maybe it's, you know, going from move two to move four, you know, through, through like an outdoor climb. Um, but just coming in with like an idea of like, this is the number of reps that I want to do today. And maybe I didn't send this climb. Maybe I didn't do any of the climbs that I came in here to do today, but I got through like this workout that I like, uh, preset and, uh, you know, I'm proud of myself for being able to, uh, get through those like number of sets and like that number of reps, because having the perspective that it will make you a better climber in the long run, even if the initial objective of doing climb X, Y, or Z didn't happen. Yeah. I love that. Focusing more on, on process. Yeah. Than outcome. Yeah, exactly. I have another note here related to this. Pessimism is lazy. And you saying that you resonate with that idea. Can you elaborate on that side of it? I think that's interesting as well. Sure. I mean, I think that, <laughs> I think that as I've gotten older and, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm in, I'm in basically my late twenties now, so I'm able to, yeah, provide a perspective to the, no, I, I think that, uh, the idea behind like pessimism being lazy is that it actually takes a lot of work to be optimistic. It's like, I, I understand that like, there are a lot of challenges that we have as people that, you know, maybe it's easier for me to have like this attitude than it is for a uh, person X, Y, or Z in like a different position. But I think that, uh, being it's like i I guess i i think that like the like pessimist pessimism is like more inherent maybe to human nature that we like that's like why news is negative why on social media we like can like get jealous of people or like we like quickly like scroll towards things that like maybe uh give us more of like a reaction um doom scrolling i think that it takes a lot of yeah i i just i just think that like it takes a lot of work in order to get into like that mindset that we're benefiting ourselves over time. And I think it's easier to fall into this, like, oh, I just like suck today. And like, that's who I am. And that's all I can do um, today. Instead of like, you know, putting in like the mental energy to believe that like the session that you're having is going to benefit you in like the long run or putting in the work to ask the questions of like, why is it helpful that I'm like learning on this climb as opposed to just being able to like send it. And I think that that also speaks to me as like, why climbing is like so beautiful is that like while sending is like really sick, like it provides an avenue to like learn about ourselves at like a deeper level. Mm-hmm. Uh, does that sort of answer the question? Yeah. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I think it's mm, for, for me personally, I think it's often a problem of resolution. Like when I'm really zoomed in, I can kind of stay in that optimistic mindset. Like I did the move more times today or I did the move and it felt a little better or I didn't do the move, but I felt a little stronger in the position that I generate from. Or, you know, there's like so many ways to find that little bit of progress. But then when I get derailed is when I see someone else, maybe it's a comparison thing or it's it's when I zoom out a little bit too far and, 
you know, someone else just hikes it and you're like, damn, I have so far, there's so much distance between me and this other person. And I kind of thought I would have, should have, blah, 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 blah. You just run away and kind of create this story and it, it distracts you from like what's actually right in front of you and what's actually happening. Yeah. And I don't want to like say like, it's not okay to be frustrated because I'm of course like frustrated a lot of the time, Mm -hmm. like when I'm doing my training or whatever, like I think that it is really hard to not be frustrated. And I think it in many ways is like helpful for like those learning objectives to, yeah, get a little, get a little mad, get a little frustrated and like, yeah, use that as like energy coming into climbing. But I think like the bigger picture of like, when you leave the gym, are you upset with yourself about how the session went? Or are you asking yourself, what did I learn today? How is this going to be advantageous advantageous for me in the future? Is a really important piece of climbing in general and uh, keeping that process like alive of like growth, like ha- having a growth mindset and like being able to uh, approach the sport with an open mind when you like come back into the gym that you like have improved allows you to become a better climber in the long run. You seem like such a sweet and wholesome guy. I'm really curious to know what happens when you get frustrated. Do you get pissed off? Do you throw your shoes? Do you yell? Like, (laughs) do you ever, do you ever show frustration externally? And what does that look like for you? I probably become like pretty quiet, I would say. Uh, Mm. Yeah, it's a good question. I think that, uh, I think I haven't really, yeah, like thrown a wobbler. Like, I think that would be kind of fun one day. <laughs> maybe, maybe it wouldn't be fun for me or like the people around me, but it'd be kind of fun to... Goals. Yeah. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> no, I, I think that, uh, yeah, I would say I would say I would get like pretty frustrated. I probably spend way too long trying like an individual move that I, there's probably like no way that I'm going to do it in that session. I think that, yeah, just like enjoying like that kind of like head beating myself against the wall um, sort of situation. Um yeah. And I think that, uh, that <laughs> might be seen like in some ways, like as a strength, I think that learning to preserve energy to like fight on another day is also like one that I feel like I've never really mastered. Mm. Um, and I think in general, like, I think that my like training has become like very heavy on like the volume side. And I think like getting to use that sort of frustration to, you know, not get bored of like that training, but I just like fell in the circuit and I want to be able to like get a little bit further this time has like really enabled me to become or have like that volume base that I'm able to push out uh, today. So I think, I think I definitely, um, yeah, get frustrated, get mad. Uh, sometimes, as I said before, like it's moving away from like optimistic training to kind of like being hard on myself. And I think that uh, I've, if anything, I've just become more aware of when that is happening, when I'm settling into um, those routines that I think aren't productive for improvement in rock climbing. Um, And I think that I'm better at being able to pull out faster and reset so that I'm not consistently in that mindset. What does the debrief look like for you after a bad training session? Are you processing it internally? Do you have go-to people that you talk to about it? Do you have a go-to coach that you reach out and talk to about it? Yeah, so I still work with uh, Randy Goldberg, who's been my coach actually since I was nine. Um, and, coach Randy. Uh, really fortunate. Yeah, Coach Randy, shout out. Uh, I, I feel really fortunate to like have someone who's like known me for that long. She's really talented on like the mental side of coaching, I would say. And it's pretty cool to be like, yeah, like I just struggled with this session in this way. And she'll be like, oh, well, like 
in this competition in 2014, like you also did, or like, I don't know, like, I feel like it's like kind of cool to like dig up the past and like, uh, kind of showcase like how I've dealt with similar challenges, even when I was like a little kid, which is like funny to say, like, I'm still struggling, um, in certain aspects of the sport that I was like, even back then. Uh, but I think it's just what I was saying before, as far as like jumping back faster, I think every time I like fall into maybe like a hole, I'll call it, I'm able to dig myself out, um, that much quicker the next time around because I've kind of like built up these, uh, mental routines and, uh, support base basically, um, who have been able to help me out of it quicker. Um, yeah, I mean, as far as the sport network, like, I think that's really important for me right now. Like, I guess I've always had the perspective that climbing is like an individual sport, but I think especially this year, it's really apparent to me how you're only as good as like the team around you. Um, that includes Randy, my coach, like, uh, my partner, Hannah, my parents, my sister, you know, the list goes on. And then also like in person, having coaches throughout all these different areas that are willing to support me and, you know, hang out with me for a couple hours to just like watch me climb, give me like small tips and tricks. Um, like I really feel like, yeah, a NASCAR driver with like all those different team members who are, um, <laughs> yeah, putting in the work just to make sure that I'm like in the best spot I can be to, uh, approach like the next, next lap in the best way possible. So I think that's like, uh, yeah, just amazing how much climbing can be like a team sport, um, along with it feeling like so individual. I have a note about coach Randy, um, about each of us being a body of water. Do you want to speak to that? Yeah. I mean, I think that kind of goes back to, uh, when we were talking before about how I heard the difference between like optimistic and, uh, I don't know, I'll call it like <laughs> being hard on yourself training. So Randy has like this analogy for, uh, each of us, our climbing is like a body of water and each day that we climb is kind of like a drop in that water. So even though the drop like feels really significant at the time, you're a body of water. So your uh, individual or your your whole mass isn't really changing that much based on that day of climbing. I, I think the quickest idea that comes to mind in that respect is the difference for me between like Bern, like the world championships this year and like Pan American championships this, this past year. So burn is a day that I think like really felt like significant for me. It was like my first world championships. Uh, it was, uh, a competition that I felt like I trained super hard for it. I felt like I was like in some of the best physical shape that I could be, but, um, you know, on competition day, I just like dropped the ball. I didn't, uh, put in, uh, what I thought I could. Uh, and, um, I didn't make like, uh, uh, finals for that competition. And, uh, I was, yeah, quite bummed. But I think like most people, when they think back to burn, they're not going to remember like the disappointment that I had towards that event. But when we think about like Pan Ams, like I think that that similarly, like I was probably in the best physical shape and maybe mental shape of like my climbing career. Um, I feel like that is always going to like stand out as like a significant day. But for me personally, like I think both days have really significant weight to me, mm -hmm. even though like externally they both appear to be like, like one seems like way more significant than the other. Um, like it changes like a title, it changes like, um, the opportunities that I'm going to get, but, uh, really being able to focus on like who you are as a body of water and how, um, how you're not like fully changing and you are like the summation of all of these different days and keeping that perspective, I think really allows us to continue to 
keep our head up and um, yeah, see the bigger picture. Mm, that's beautiful. Yeah, it is. It is interesting. Yeah, that one day, Pan American Games, you end up with that label of an Olympian. And I, I remember you saying on our first call that like you didn't, you don't necessarily love that. Like you don't like that. At least for some people, that kind of elevates you beyond relatability. And for you, you're like, I'm still the same guy. Like, I'm still a, a person, you know, I'm still struggling with all the same things as everyone else. I didn't like magically change because of this one day, even though, yeah, it, it does open up, you know, a, a different path and a new chapter in your life. But, um, but yeah, I, I think that's really beautiful. The body of water. Yeah. I, I mean, I think in, in that, in that, uh, what you just said, like, I think that it's just like, you know, the challenges that I was facing as a kid trying to like climb five eleven. like I still relate to that in some ways like maybe i've gotten faster at uh approaching uh those challenges but um you know seeing someone like yeah try hard on like a v3 in the gym and like work through those challenges i think is you know no different than like what i'm approaching on a day-to-day -day, uh basis it just is like the scale and the intensity and um uh you know the pieces that i've like learned along the way have like helped me get through those challenges maybe like slightly faster or or not like <laughs> I, I definitely know of people who are able to send their project at like a lower level faster than I would. So, uh, you know, that's, it's all relative. And I think that, um, that's something cool about the sport. It's like, we're able to side by side, like climb our, our grades and our, uh, our challenge point, I guess, next to each other and still be able to like support one another. So yeah, I think that's pretty cool. So when you're a kid, your, your parents take your sister to the climbing gym, you're six years old. You've got tons of energy. You can't sit still. So you start climbing and then you fall in love with it too. Um, did you know that you were good at climbing at the start or did it take a while before you started to notice like, oh, I might have something here? Yeah, I mean, I think I often would like, uh, I, I was a pretty oblivious kid, so I, I didn't really notice at all. Uh, like I think, you know, winning, winning nationals or whatever, like I think I never, I, I think I was actually pretty good about like not letting that, sort of get to my head i just like really enjoyed like playing in a gym getting to see friends like nationals was always a cool event just because i got to like yeah see those friends that i had like made throughout like the whole country and i think it was like one of the few times when that was like a possibility how old were you I, when you won nationals for the first time uh, i was 10 or 11 <laughs> i forget honestly okay. uh but but basically like right when you started competing right that was like your first competition yeah it was first... within, within one year okay. yeah i wow. won my like first nationals um but like i was pretty oblivious to it like i think that it was like oh cool like that's uh you know exciting like i'm glad i was able to like do some boulders and um i think like honestly when i started like noticing what was going on around me that it really like started um having a negative effect maybe more more so on my climbing um, but I think, I think like as a whole, like I would say I've never particularly felt like talented at climbing. Um, I think the only time that maybe I did was like winning nationals, like within a year, but, uh, to me, like, yeah, I just don't think that like, uh, seeing other people climb and like, you know, not getting into the comparison train too much, but I think that, uh, I've just never felt particularly like gifted in any one way. Like, I think that my main, uh, sort of talents come down to like sort of my work ethic and um, just being able to have the opportunity to be able to, to climb uh, as consistently as I have over the years. So uh, yeah, I think that hopefully that is a good thing and not seen as like 
me being self-deprecating because I think it is like powerful for me that like it's not about talent that we start with it's like I, I guess talent that we grow mm. <laughs> um, or something corny like that <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, but I hope that makes sense yeah, it does. And for people listening, just to clarify, because, you, you know, you said within a year, but that was within your first year of competing, but you had been yeah. climbing for five years or something at that point. Yeah. 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 I think that maybe like, yeah, when I, between like six and nine, maybe like once a week or something like that. Um, but okay. yes, I was still climbing for sure. Okay. Gotcha. I want to hear what happened with bouldering in the last year and how you've turned that around. I was looking through your IFSC um, accomplishments uh, last night and kind of just going through the list and you've been competing for a long time 2022 definitely seems like your breakout year like you got on the podium a couple times and then you won your first couple world cups in lead in 2022 and definitely not bouldering yet <laughs> exactly like you're bouldering i think at that point the best result you'd had in bouldering was like 27th and then uh, you had a World Cup, I think it was 2022 as well, where you competed and combined, got 16th. And then the Pan American Games, boom, first and combine, you secure your ticket to the Olympics. So what happened there? How have you turned around bouldering? Because it seems like you've really prioritized lead. And, um, and yeah, it seems like something's shifted in the last year or so with your bouldering. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I, I just love bringing up this fact i guess but the first like i world cup in bouldering i did i didn't get a single zone uh which was 2022 uh and i got last last place is this uh miring in yeah exactly <laughs> um so i i just think it's like back to the conversation of like how we kind of like view individual days like i think that that was like a a fire under the belly to get my shit together and uh kind of like start working hard on like this discipline because I realized how much of a gap I had between me and like the other competitors and um, kind of like seeing that idea of like me becoming a combined athlete. Um, I always like, yeah, boulder and lead climb, but I think competition bouldering specifically was never something I really put uh, the work into mainly because I didn't have the resources I would say, but also it wasn't just like the style of climbing that I like grew up in. So it wasn't my natural tendency um, over yeah, the past like two years, I would say that what shifted for me is like, uh, honestly, more than anything, like an acknowledgement that I am lacking a lot in uh, several of the departments that are necessary to become like a good competition boulder. Um, so like coordination moves, slab climbing, um, I don't know, awkward starts. <laughs> uh, there are a lot of pieces to what make like competition bouldering in general. Um, and I think like being able to pinpoint those weaknesses and then come to the gym, either the training center or like uh, a local gym and uh, kind of like get to focus on those and have like designated time to put into getting better at that movement. And that doesn't mean like I'm sending the NAR and like every, every uh, hard boulder that's like put in front of me, but kind of having those like learning objectives and uh, the belief that I'm like, uh, you know, even without a send, like I'm still improving at the style, uh, I think has really set me up well. And yeah, to your point, like, I think that, uh, you know, Jesse in 2022 leaving, uh, Meyergen would never have thought that like, I could have won a round in like bouldering in, in like a Pan American championship, um, like a, a year and a half later. Uh, so yeah, it's, 
it's definitely been a, a a change. I think that like I of course am like here and uh, want to get like way higher uh, for those that are just listening. I guess, um, and uh, I think that trying to be mindful that like that gap isn't going to be filled overnight, and that gap is like quite wide, but it's like not insurmountable. Uh, I think is something that I have to just like consistently remind myself with and yeah, just consistently sort of like focus on, uh, the small wins and, uh, small improvements instead of like, Oh, that this conflict didn't go that great. Um, so I, I guess I should throw in the towel. Um, so yeah, I think it's been, I think it's been a fun journey. And I also think that's like in general, like a beautiful part about climbing is that I'm like this far along in my career, uh, you know, like 15 years into competition climbing, probably even longer. And, uh, I still have like so much to learn and so much to grow in. And I think that, uh, that's like never going to stop for like my whole life, which is like really cool. Like there's so many more disciplines that I am unskilled at that I'm excited to test myself on and continue to learn. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm curious, what is the strategy you've got, you know, five months remaining before, uh, Paris, what is the strategy for the Olympics? Are you just all in on bouldering because that's where you have the most room for growth? I imagine, you know, obviously you don't want to uh, let the lead fitness slip to the wayside too much. Um, is it a matter of getting stronger for the bouldering or is it just a matter of learning these kind of unique competition skills, like dealing with the awkward starts and all the weird pressing and man, it just seems so weird. But, um, but yeah, what, what is your strategy? Like, it, cause it's also a combined event. So, you know, if you lead, if you win lead, you don't have to do nearly as well in the bouldering. How are you thinking about balancing those two things in your preparation? Yeah. I mean, I think what you just said, like, as far as like trying to maintain, maintain a balance is like definitely, uh, a priority for me. Um, I would say that, uh, I'm definitely thinking about, and uh, I guess throughout this whole conversation, it might really seem like I have you know, oh, I'm like planning to like go to this this place this week to like learn X, Y, or Z skill. Like, I feel like in my head, like that would be amazing if I had that figured out. But honestly, it's just like, oh, let's try this, let's try that. I, I feel like I'm like a little bit less organized than maybe it's sounding on this podcast so far. But um, I do have like I'm working with a strength and conditioning coach um, through like the through USA Climbing, um, as well as uh, Zach T. Cristino, who's like our PT and um, they both have been helping me sort of like work through a strength building phase throughout the winter. And that's been kind of like a focus. And now I'm sort of moving into like sort of like a power phase and then I'll kind of like transition to more of like a power endurance slash like endurance phase, like towards like the lead up of to the Olympics in general. Like I think that, uh, what I am kind of thinking about is like where I'm like lacking and, um, which areas of those that I'm lacking, would most quickly sort of like be able to provide me with like points like leading up to the Olympics. Um, so for instance, like, like I said before, like slab, slab climbing is something that I'm not as consistent on um, in those like bouldering competitions, but quite often, like it is like a big separator between like those who progress in a round and those who don't. And uh, coordination is like a similar one where, you know, usually it just comes down to like one move of coordination that decides whether you do a boulder or not. So I think that uh, those are two areas that I'm really trying to focus on and improve. Um, and I definitely have seen uh, seen that improvement. I think it's just a question of like, is it fast enough? Is it going to 
pay off enough. And uh, either way, I think it is, yeah, just quite a fun uh, adventure to be able to work hard in something new and um, learn the skills sort of like needed to to accomplish the yeah sort of feats that I hope I am able to in the future. Nice, yeah. It sounds like um, as far as your endurance training goes, because obviously you're you're kind of a lead specialist and you're amazing at it. Um, it sounds like most of your training has been circuits, like making up your own circuits and just trying them and trying them and trying them. Has that changed at all? Is that still your like a like a go to session for you, making up a thirty move? It sounds like you have thirty move circuits and forty five move circuits. The thirty move ones are a little bit more intense, and and you spend most of your training time uh, just hammering circuits that you've made up. Is that still a staple for you? Yeah, definitely a staple for sure. Um, I think that it's like one of the best ways to one have something consistent that you can like come back to and see improvement over time. Uh, but also something that you can consistently like sort of like tweak, make improvements to make it harder, make a move that like is similar to like a World Cup, maybe that you like weren't able to do in the World Cup, but like want to make sure that you're confident in going forward. Um, so I think that kind of like optimization to an individual makes circuits like one of the best workouts out there for me particularly. Um, I also like doing like uh, kind of like up, down, ups, whatever on like the bouldering wall as well. Uh, I think that's kind of a fun variation to make uh, kind of like on-site training uh, 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 possible, like in a bouldering gym, um, like for ropes specifically. But yeah, I would say like those two are kind of like my bread and butter of like becoming the best like rope climber that I can possibly be. Can you expand on the up-down-ups? Is that you're just like climbing a set boulder and then down climbing another set boulder or the same one or just like a set of holds that you pick out? Yeah, so exactly right. Like it's like uh, I pick like kind of like a hard boulder, go up it, pick a easier boulder, I go down it, and then I pick like a medium boulder that I'll like go up, and then maybe I'll like repeat that, uh, you know, a couple times, and then like move to another one. Um, but you know, having like that, I don't know, grade breakdown of like uh, something hard into uh, something more doable into something that like maybe I'll do. Uh, I think like is able to add some like spice to the training and variety that maybe is like lacking from like, I'm not able to like, you know, just make like a 30 or 45 minute move circuit, like really time consistently. And every time I like come into a new gym. Um, so I think that that allows for a uh, variety to be put into training as well. And we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Fizzy Vantage. I'm guessing a lot of you listen to this podcast because you want to get better at climbing, right? You want those training nuggets. You want to send your proj. Well, guess what? There's only one climbing-specific pre-workout on the market, and that's SendurX from Fizzy Vantage. Sendur X is a rare non-caffeinated pre-workout. Most pre-workouts are all about a big caffeine hit, but not this one. Many pro climbers like to steer clear of excessive caffeine because of the jitters and anxiety it can cause, which is not helpful if you're trying to send your proj. Sendurex active ingredients, beetroot extract and citrulline malate, work by increasing circulation and oxygen kinetics. There's a ton of research showing the value 
value of these substances for improving power endurance in repeated sprint sports and aerobic capacity in many endurance events. Most climbers genuinely feel a difference when consuming Sendure X. I think this stuff is especially helpful for pumpy sport climbing, but even if you're a boulderer, you're occasionally going to try a long boulder and you're gonna get pumped and you'll get less pumped with Sendure X. So check it out. If you would like to feel the Fizzy Vantage, head over to fizzyvantage.com and use code NUGGET15 at checkout to save 15% off any full-priced nutrition product. That's NUGGET15 at checkout, and you can find a direct link to this coupon right there in your podcast app. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you'll know that it's not just about climbing. It's also about getting to know people and learning from them. And it's about getting to know ourselves because until we do that, it's really hard to know how to get where we wanna go in our life, our romantic relationships, climbing, or anything. Therapy is all about deepening your self-awareness and understanding because sometimes we don't know what we want or why we react the way we do until we talk through things. BetterHelp connects you with a licensed therapist who can take you on that journey of self-discovery from wherever you are. I've been going to therapy twice a month for the last year and a half through BetterHelp, and I cannot overstate how helpful it's been. It's helped me unpack some relationship baggage and learn from those experiences so I don't repeat the same patterns over and over. And now I'm in the healthiest relationship I've ever been in, and it's amazing. And I really do credit therapy for a lot of that growth. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. I still use it, and it's perfect for my lifestyle. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge and without any awkwardness. It's super, super easy. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com nugget today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot slash nugget. And now back to the show. <clears throat> Where should we go next? I have uh, I have a handful of other topics. I think we should definitely talk about um, your work because that's that's really unique. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I I find it really interesting that um, you're holding down like a very serious job. It sounds like you've shifted to part time while you're preparing for the Olympics, but you're working at the Harvard Biodesign Lab. And um, it's interesting that you you seem to think that that actually helps your climbing rather than competing for energy that you would put into climbing. Tell me about that. Tell me about, um, I guess, first, like the balance there and why it's important to you to have this job at all. And then I think it'd be interesting to dig into what you actually do. Yeah, for sure. I, I guess we can start on the balance point. Um, so I guess like for me, you know, coming from going to school and then like going to uh, undergrad and um, kind of always like, having this, uh, trajectory of like balance within climbing. Uh, I think like the times when I've sort of lost that, which is like the only time was like, I took a year off, um, in 2019, just to focus on like the advocacy, like world cup circuit. I felt like whenever I didn't do as well, like in a competition, I would have like nothing to fall back on. And I would just be like more, uh, I'll just call it like being like mean to myself. Like I just like, uh, got into this, you know, meet like unhappy habit of like 
you know, I don't really have anything else that I'm like working towards. I'm just a climber and I'm not a very good climber right now. So like, what's the, uh, what, like, why am I doing this? Um, I think having now I've like been working in the biodesign lab for three and a half years. Um, in 2022, I did switch to part-time and remote, um, which is, I feel quite fortunate, uh, to be able to do and, uh, to be able to, you know, finish training session and, you know, kind of like either jot down my thoughts or talk to someone about like how that training session went and then just be able to like put it away and, uh, focus on something else for a period of time, I think is really beneficial. Like, I think like if I didn't have that balance, I think I would go a little bit crazy and like the what if cave with like climbing of like, you know, should I be doing this? Should I be doing that? Should like, am I doing enough? And I think like, there's only so much like physical improvement that one can do within climbing over a set period of time that I think it's like not a very, uh, it's, it's really useful to have something else just as far as like brain power to be able to work on other problems. And I think that it makes me feel like more refreshed, honestly, when I like come back to climbing and then also like those, those failures or, uh, what I view as like days when I like could have done better, but didn't, uh, kind of like sting a little bit less, um, Mm. because it's like, okay, I, I'm not maybe the best climber that I could be today, but I'm also like doing pretty well, like in engineering or, uh, and, and vice versa, honestly, like, I think there are days when engineering is not going too hot, but I'm able to be like, okay, I like, uh, you know, came to the gym and just sent this sick climb that I've been like working on. So that's like a win. Um, so I think just like giving yourself the opportunity to win more in life is like kind of a, uh, a good thing to, to work on and a good thing to, to focus on. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I really relate to that as well. And, um, <clears throat> you know, people, that have listened to the show for a while will know my story. I'm not going to share it all here, but I've, I definitely thought for a long time that focusing, like living, like breathing, eating, sleeping, climbing, like everything climbing was going to be the ticket to, you know, me becoming the best climber I could be. And uh, really it was just a fast track to, to burnout, to overuse injuries, to an eating disorder, to like all these things that come with obsession when you don't have that balance. And it is tricky because like on on the one hand, it kind of did work, but at the same time it didn't, like it wasn't sustainable. I wasn't able to build on each season and get the compounding growth that you get when you're doing something really sustainable. And I remember I took a road trip when I was 23 after college, I was a broke college kid and lived in my Subaru for a few months and traveled and climbed. And it really, I had nothing else to do. And it really didn't take very long for me to kind of start having like existential crises all the time. You know, I was like, I didn't send my project today. What the fuck am I doing with my life? My bank account's like dwindling. You know, I'm just tweaked. I, I'm like bored on rest days. What am I doing here? And uh, it's been a lot more fun and fulfilling and sustainable um, to be able to have conversations like this one and and do the podcast and balance that with my climbing, even though it's like kind of less optimal for my climbing schedule a lot of the time. Um, It still feels like it's a a really big help overall. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's a big difference between optimal for training or climbing and optimal for like you as a person. And I think that optimizing for you as a person is like way more important than optimizing for you know this magical like ideal like training person that um may or may not exist out there totally Um, right i appreciate that (laughs) and i I also think that like for me like that uh you know is work but it also is like 
you know, volunteering um, in various like aspects of my life, I think it's like really important. Uh, you know, like I, I work with like youth climbing and some other like nonprofits. And I think that, uh, I think that just like being able to give my time to something beyond myself, I think that that as a whole has always been something that feels impactful and something that like I can be proud of. That's like not, yeah, just, just climbing. Um, and I think that, uh, yeah, ever since like high school, like, I think that's been something that is important to me. Yeah, I'm really impressed with you as far as that goes. I, I was reading about you working with, I think it was kids with disabilities and and having climbing be a part of their therapy. Um, tell me a little bit about that. How did you get into that and, and what did that look like? Yeah, so uh, it was probably like one of the only organizations like in the country uh, at the time that like was doing work like this. And it just happened to be at uh, my local gym. Uh, the program was called Peak Potential and uh, it worked with kids with physical disabilities to uh, teach them how to climb. Um, and I think that uh, for up, up to that point, uh, until high school, like I had always just been doing climbing for myself. And um, of course, like getting that uh, appreciation for what I could accomplish um, in like the human performance dimension uh, for myself, like always felt very impactful and meaningful. But getting to see like kids' faces like light up when they like, reach the top of the wall for the first time. There's like no feeling like that for me. Uh, and I think that that was why I like sort of like pursued like mechanical engineering and like kind of am doing like the work that I'm doing today. Um, just because I think that like, it's important for me to have an avenue where uh, I'm pushing myself on a physical dimension and also enabling others to do the same. So yeah, I'm, uh, I've talked about that program before, but I think it's like, been one of the most like meaningful experiences that I've had in life and yeah, has like impacted me quite greatly. That's so cool. Yeah, that's amazing. And then, yeah, tell me more about what you're doing at Harvard in the biodesign lab. Um, what is soft robotics? Let's start with that. Yeah. So, uh, I guess that, that is, uh, what the lab kind of focuses on. So instead of using rigid materials like metals, um, Soft robotics utilizes textiles and other squishy and soft material uh, that's like moved with either like strings or magnets or air and uh, allowing for that material to deform over surfaces that are uh, maybe more complex than uh, metal could. So soft robotics as a whole, uh, just allowing uh, these various uh, linkages that are soft to uh, either be like worn or moved across surfaces um, using like robotics as opposed to rigid material. What's an application of this? Yeah, so there are a lot of applications in like wearable technology. One of my favorite videos that like exists of like comparing rigid versus like soft robotics is like uh, a uh, fully robotic like human like walking on gravel. So the robot, the robot is like completely made of metal. And you can see like a lot of these videos online of just like you know, something that was made for a flat surface being moved to something that isn't flat anymore, it'll just like completely topple over because it doesn't have any way of, uh, you know, changing course um, when it like stands on a rock that's like maybe pointed in the wrong direction. Um, soft robotics, like because it's squishy, it uh, deforms to any surface that you sort of put it on. Um, it's also like a lot more comfortable uh, for like wearable technology. So uh, our lab specifically focuses on both like assistive and rehabilitation uh, devices for stroke pa patients. Um, so what that looks like is 
for instance, like I worked on like a soft robotic glove and uh, it uses like textiles that kind of inflate and you'll like wear the glove and when it inflates, it'll just like open the person's hand. Uh, and then we have other things called actuators, which are basically just like tubes of, uh, or like basically like a balloon that will then like push the, the hand uh, down as well. So um, basically giving someone a soft glove that will uh, be able to like open and close their hand uh, wouldn't really be possible with something that was like metal or nearly as comfortable, I'll say. Uh, because like, say you have like a weird joint, which, you know, all climbers probably do, uh, that maybe, uh, doesn't quite fit over like a specific, uh, joint of like the metal piece, then it would like kind of deform your finger and it would definitely hurt. Um, whereas like a balloon inflating on your finger is a lot more comfortable. Um, so kind of using those like principles for the body, for robots that robots that have to maybe like, uh, worm into, uh, I don't know, maybe like a natural disaster that just happened um, or walk over like uh, uneven surfaces. Um, I think that's like, there's a lot of potential uh, for the field of like soft robotics to kind of like transform our world in the future. Um, and I think it really is just like a very novel and like new uh, field in general. So it's pretty exciting for sure to be a part of it. That's very cool. I want a soft robotic pair of pants that I can wear that <laughs> that stretch me when I'm sleeping. I just want to go to sleep and, <laughs> and work on my mobility and wake up and be able to do the splits. I think that Yeah, yeah. And I think that it actually is like uh, for like sports rehabilitation, like there are those like added recovery or like other, I don't know, I'm not, uh, I haven't worked for them. They worked like USAC before, um, but kind of like this idea of like gaining uh, sort of recovery by like, I don't know, having it like inflate around like a limb or yeah, adding like blood flow um, is definitely being used by like pneumatic devices today. So it's pretty cool for sure. And I think that it will definitely come in the recovery space as a whole. <laughs> Can't wait. Yeah, I hope I hope we get a pair of pants for you soon. <laughs> <laughs> um, you uh, you also I, I, you know now you're working remotely, and we were talking about this. You um, you put together a soft robotics competition. Um, the planning and stuff was was uh, was part of your responsibility. What were you most impressed by? Like, what are people coming up with? What are some of the things that have kind of blown your mind in this field? Yeah, so specifically, like, through the lab, I've uh, more recently been working on, like, the Soft Robotics Toolkit, which is, like, an educational platform to kind of, like, teach people about soft robotics and uh, kind of bring a community of, like, uh, <laughs> I guess, yeah, community of people, like, within the fields from around the world, like, together. And one of the ways we do that is through like this competition and uh, basically like people apply, they share their project. And then we have like a panel of judges who uh, kind of like votes on like the most impactful research of the year and like how well it's like been put together. Yeah, I'm uh, happy to like share a story on that uh, later. But uh, basically like one of the winning projects was like this uh, gripper that was uh, modeled after a rose and how, how a rose will like open and close. Um, it, uh, basically, uh, created, yeah, this like rose like structure that would like close around objects and, uh, it could pick up like oily eggs, which like, you know, if you can imagine like uh, a metal gripper, like trying to do the same task, it would totally like break the egg or, uh, you know, have the egg like slip out of it itself. Um, so I think that like, yeah, as far as like uh, agriculture and uh, mm. pick and placement machines, like I think that soft robotics has like a lot of potential to 
kind of like change the game. Um, and yeah, there were like plenty of other devices, like uh, prosthetic devices to um, home KitchenAid. Uh, I think like in the assistive and rehabilitation space, like yeah, soft robotics has like a lot of potential to to change the future of, of work there. That's fascinating. I, I always feel two different things. I wonder if you relate to this um, when I see new technology and stuff like, you know, I'll see this stuff on Instagram sometimes, new robots doing backflips and doing obstacle courses. And it's just mind blowing, yeah. you know, it's like not that far off from like iRobot <laughs> sort of stuff. <clears throat> but then hearing you talk about robots trying to walk on gravel and just immediately tipping over. So I'm like amazed at what we can build as humans, what we've created artificially. And then on the other hand, I'm like, wow, humans are so fucking amazing. Like uh, we as as people, as like biological entities, the things our body can do are so incredible. Our ability to just, you know, our ankles and our feet to articulate over uneven terrain and hike with a bunch of crash pads on our back or whatever it is. It's just, you don't even blink at the things that we can do that are just totally mind-blowing. Like if we invented a robot that could do half the things that a human can do, It'd be like a, I don't know, Nobel Prize winning achievement. And, and we just like yeah. take all that stuff for granted every day. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. Like I started actually working in this field in a uh, worm robot lab, uh, which basically like um, we studied this worm called like the Manduka. And uh, it uh, like, like basically like there were some biologists and some like engineers in the lab. And our whole goal was sort of to like, uh, you know, replicate some of the functions that uh, this worm would have uh, in a robot and like, we can't even do a worm, I'll just say like, and um, you know, that biomimicry is like always something that I think like the field is trying to like replicate, but you know, at like that, like smaller scale, it's like even challenging. So the thought of like getting to do all the things that like humans can do is yeah, kind of like mind blowing for sure. But yeah, we're getting there like step by step um, and it'll be yeah crazy to see like the future of this technology going forward. What are you, uh, what are you proudest of as far as your contribution to this kind of work or what are you most excited about that you'll, that you'll have an yeah. opportunity to work on? I think a couple things, like one, I, uh, uh, actually just like, uh, was able to, it's been like almost like a year long process, but that glove project that I would sort of mentioned before, um, I, uh, helped like sort of like write a paper that, uh, was just like, uh, published. And, um, I think that I feel quite proud of like getting to like see that through um over like the many years that that's like been going on for um and then too like i think just like continuing to be a part of like the community in this like small way like with this competition and uh kind of beyond like i do feel proud that like we're able to continue to grow the community and be able to uh yeah inspire like the next generation of like soft roboticists and like also like have you know tutorials and stuff on the website to get people interested in the fields and i honestly think like you know whether it be like climbing or or soft robotics or like another field like i think just like being able to pass along the inspiration has always been meaningful to me and like being able to you know showcase something cool and have someone take away from that coolness i guess and be able to apply that to themselves or like have that slightly change their lives or uh think about something different is like really impactful for me so um yeah hopefully it, it pays forward that's awesome. Yeah, very, very cool. Well, I appreciate you, man. I don't have much else um, uh, that I had in mind for this kind of main episode. I do have some listener questions for you. Um, how are you feeling on on time? Do you want to pivot and dive into some listener stuff? 
Let's do it. Yeah, okay. It's like <laughs> okay. I'll wrap up with a couple quick questions here. Um, <laughs> I was looking at your Instagram in prep for this, and in your bio is a quote that says, "Take it easy, but take it." What does that mean? <laughs> so this is a quote from my dad. Actually, um, uh, I believe it's a Woody Guthrie co- quote. Uh, and uh, when I was going to compete on like the 2019 circuit. I think that uh, that was what he told me in the car on the way to the airport. Um, basically, what it means is uh, that, uh, you know, you're trying hard doing these like competitions, going out of your comfort zone. You better you better try hard and uh, do everything you can to get out there and, um, you know, be the tenacious and uh, go-getter person that you are. But at the same time, like, don't forget that you're in these amazing places and uh, with these amazing people. So don't forget to have fun and not just focus so much on the result that you lose sight of all the things that like life has to offer. I love that. That's great. Take it easy, but take it. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't asked this one in a while, but I, I want to ask you this question. Um, what is something you wish people spent more time thinking about? Ooh. I'm not sure if this is like something that um, I can necessarily like speak for, but I do think that like ways that you can get involved in like your local community, like I especially feel this way, like when seeing like younger climbers coming into the sport, I think that like, to me, like, I think that um, I'm I'm not going to say like, I'm a a perfect advocate in any way. Like, I think that uh, I don't know the best way to do this or like uh, what makes the most sense. But I, I do just like think that like, how can you volunteer for your community? How can you help those like around you? And, you know, maybe it's like half an hour a week, an hour a week, like what organizations can you sort of like get involved with and like volunteer for? I think we all like sort of did that uh, a little bit more, like the world would be that much of like a better place for um, ourselves and like also those around us. Because like, I do think it has like, like being able to volunteer, like has had a big impact on my climbing trajectory and being able to, push myself to new limits as well as like those people that hopefully I'm assisting along the way. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I, I read, um, I think it was in, you know, maybe the climbing interview or, or something else that I read, but, um, it seems like you really wrestled with the same thing that I wrestled with in my early twenties, which is like, okay, I've found this thing that's climbing that I love and I just am obsessed with it. I want to do it all the time. I want to push myself. I want to achieve these goals, but it's all about me. And I don't know how I feel about that. I don't really know what to do with that. Um, and it right. seems, yeah, it seems right. like this was kind of your, your, your answer. Not that, the, not that it was an answer, but this, this kind of like helped you, if, you know, figure out where to put that piece of like your own selfish climbing. It's like, okay, it is serving me in all these ways. And then I'm able to like give back and contribute and, and kind of pay it forward in all these other ways. Yeah. I mean, I think there are ways that I could also, I I view it like it is selfish, but I also view it as like kind of like a neutral activity in many ways. Like I'm not harming other people and I'm not necessarily by through my climbing directly, like benefiting people. Um, I think like later down the line, like I think that there are opportunities that this will give to me to be able to do more of that, um, at like a higher scale. But I guess I, I think about that, uh, quite often that I also could have like become an engineer or like on an oil rig or like, I don't know, something that I feel like has like a, maybe 
I, I'm not saying like all uh, people who work in uh, oil like are uh, you know creating harm to like the world, but uh, they're just they're just jobs out there that I think like could create more harm than good. Is all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you. Oh, my computer is updating something. Stop doing that. Go away. Okay, there we go. <laughs> yeah, it's been really fun to get to know good you. Good timing, good timing. Yeah, <laughs> totally. It's been really fun to get to know you a bit. I really appreciate you for doing this. And man, good luck. Um, I wish you the best in your training over the next handful of months and your preparation for Paris. We're all rooting for you. Whatever happens, I hope you just have an experience and a performance that you feel proud of. Um, I hope you feel proud of the whole journey. And um, yeah, just just really appreciate your time today. It's been really good to chat. Thank you so much. Yeah, this has been a blast. So appreciate you taking the time. Awesome. All right. Well, patrons, stick around. We're going to dive into a handful of your questions. And I'm also going to ask Jesse about some of his hardest outdoor flashes, because that is something else that I just realized I skipped over and I'm excited to hear about living astro and pure imagination and how uh, you're prepared, your, yeah, how you prepared, what your preparation looked like for those things. So patrons stick around. We're going to dive into that. The rest of you guys, hope you learned something. Thanks so much for listening. We appreciate you and we'll see you next time. Hey friends, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jesse Gruper. We went on to talk for another 30 minutes. We answered some of your questions and we covered a couple of new topics that we didn't talk about in the main episode. We talked about how his training has changed for the Olympics, why he returned to competitions after college. We talked about what it feels like to climb a World Cup route, the sensations, the strategy. That was really interesting. And I was really curious to dig into his process and how he prepared for his two hardest flashes. He flashed Live in Astro in Rumney and Pure Imagination at the Red River Gorge, both 514C. It was really cool to hear about that. Those ones meant a lot to him and he put a lot of thought into those attempts. We also talked about some of his other rock climbing goals and what he thinks his potential is when it comes to rock climbing. So if you want even more time with Jesse, be sure to go check that out. That extra episode is available right now for patrons who support the Nugget Climbing Podcast for $5 per month or more. There's a link right there in your podcast app if you scroll down. And there's also a seven-day free trial. So if you didn't get enough and you want 30 more minutes with Jesse, you can go over there and sign up for free. You can go listen to it right now and you can cancel at any time. No questions asked. I would love it if you stuck around and supported the show. It means a lot to me. I couldn't do this without your guys' support. It really, really makes a difference and you'll get a lot of great bonus stuff from The Nugget. I'm putting out extras for almost every episode these days. I publish my own audio blogs once every month or two and let you guys know what I've been up to. You'll get every episode ad-free and a lot more. So be sure to go check that out. Once again, there's a link right there in your podcast app, or you can go to patreon.com slash the nugget climbing, and you can go check out that extra with Jesse right now. All right. I hope you guys have an amazing week. Much love to all of you. Enjoy your climbing. Thanks again for tuning in, and we will see you next time. Like we do it.